All right, folks, so let's, are we all in Hebrews 12? Okay. Hmm. Let's pray. Lord, may your spirit come. May he show us this race that you've called us to run. But more importantly, Lord, would you give us the inspiration and motivation to run this race with all of our might. Help us to strip away encumbrances and easily entangling sins and run with endurance the race set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. On a Monday in mid-April of every year, about 30,000 men and women in running shoes gather in Hopkinton, Massachusetts to run a course that's 26.2 torturous miles long. It concludes at the Prudential Center in downtown Boston. And before they approach the starting line, they take their last drink of water, they smear Vaseline where their clothes are going to be rubbing against their flesh, they tie their shoelaces into double knots, and they use the bathroom for the final time. Above, helicopters are buzzing as they portray what's happening down below. And then down below, 500,000 avid spectators line the course that they're going to be running. They say goodbye to their family and friends as if they're heading into the Bermuda Triangle never to return. At the appointed time, the official raises his gun and fires a shot, and a bobbing mass of humanity starts lumbering down this road in the general direction of Boston. And of course, I'm talking about the Boston Marathon. In just over two hours the winner is going to cross that finish line. Now, I did a little bit of math. That means that they're averaging a little over four and a half minutes for every one of those 26 miles. I don't know about you, but I've never run a mile in four and a half minutes. I've never even run a mile in five minutes. I don't think I've ever even run a mile in six minutes. <laughs> I've run a mile, but never that fast. <laughs> But can you imagine a four-and-a-half-minute mile, 26 of those in a row? But that's what's going on. And while they're doing that, these people are suffering untold agonies. As they cross the finish line, some are running haltingly, some are limping, some are bleeding where their clothes have been rubbing against their flesh. Some are wearing gaunt and haggard expressions. Some are clutching each other like soldiers after a dreadful defeat. But after the torture of the race subsides, this mini miracle happens. There's the certainty that whatever they endured was worth it all. The joy of crossing the finish line was worth, and it makes up for every ache, every cramp, every anguished moan. But folks, as difficult as finishing a Boston marathon might be, the Bible records that there is another marathon that every Christian is called to run. Every believer has to run this race. And it's just as challenging as any marathon. It's the Christian life. And it's going to take just as much discipline, just as much fortitude, and just as much determination for you to snap the winner's tape in heaven as it takes to finish a marathon down here below. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, talks about this long 
race, the race of the Christian life that he's called us to run. The Bible says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The main thought of this text here, this passage, is that little phrase, let us run. That's the driving verb of these two verses. Let us run. Let us run. He's calling on these Christians, these Jewish Christians, and saying, run, run, run with all your might. All the other verbs in this text are secondary. So God is calling us to run the race of life. And he gives a Christian, he gives the Christian life, he's calling us to give the Christian life everything we've got so we can cross that finish line with joy and enter into heaven. Now, how are we supposed to run this race that God's called us to? There's two things you need to notice. He says, let us run with what? Patience, my Bible says endurance or perseverance. Those are all synonyms. We are to run with endurance. And the other way we are to run comes out in verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. We are to run with endurance and we are to run with faith. That's how we run this race that God has called us to. Now, these twin ideas of endurance and faith come up quite a bit in the context. And I want to show you that as we get started. If you go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 10. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that'll come out in a second. But if you go back to Hebrews 10, take a look at verse 36. It says, for you have need of endurance. There's our first term. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by what? Faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So the twin ideas of endurance and faith come up way back here in Hebrews 10, 36 to 39. And then the very next chapter is chock full of teaching on faith. In fact, we refer to this as the hall of faith. When I was a kid, I was really into baseball. I collected baseball cards, and there's the baseball hall of fame. That's where you, all the great baseball players of all time, they, we, we induct them into the hall of fame. Well, Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. All of the great Old Testament heroes of faith are recorded for us in this chapter. Men like Abel, and Enoch, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and the list goes on and on. But basically, here in Hebrews chapter 11, Old Testament witness after Old Testament saint is brought forth as an example of enduring faith. The author's trying to show us, what does enduring faith look like, and what does it achieve? Well, he tells us here in Hebrews chapter 11, it brings victory, it wins, it brings you to the end. It brings you to cross the goal and to snap that finish line. 
So that's in Hebrews 11, he mentions the word faith 25 times. And then as he comes to Hebrews chapter 12, he has not changed subjects. He's still talking about enduring faith. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured, there's our word again, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. His point is, look at Jesus. He endured, and you need to endure in faith just like he did. You need to run this race that God has called you to with faith and with endurance. So this is the race of faith, and this race is not a short-lived, simple little sprint. This race is going to take the rest of your life. You will be running every day for the rest of your life. You will run all day today, and you're going to get up tomorrow, and you're going to keep running this race, and the next day you're going to get up and keep running this race, and you're never going to stop running until you die or Jesus comes back. That's how long this race is going to take. Now, why did the author of Hebrews have to exhort these believers to run the race with enduring faith? Just consider that for a moment. And incidentally, I don't know if you realize this, but the book of Hebrews is chock full of exhortations to continue and to persevere to the end. Uh, When I read through Hebrews, I, I put a red EP, exhortation to perseverance, in the margin of my Bible, and they're everywhere. Now, why would he do that? Did you need to ask something, Rob? Oh, okay. (laughs) Thank you for that agreement. Thank you for that. Amen. So, yeah. Why would they have to do that? Well, it's because this book is written to Jewish Christians who are suffering persecution because they had forsaken Judaism for Christ. They had given up the temple and its ceremonies. They had given up the feasts and the festivals and the animal sacrifices, and they're holding fast to Christ, the head, and they're being persecuted for that. And so the author has to exhort them over and over and over, keep going, don't lose heart, don't grow weary, keep on, you can do it. That's what the book is about. Now, in here at Hebrews 12, verse 1, that word for race is the Greek word agona. And we get our English word agony from this word. Run the agony with endurance. And that's really what a marathon is like, an agonizing, torturous race. In other words, the race that God has called you and I to race will not be easy. It's going to be very difficult. It's not going to be easy to finish the race. It's not a quick sprint. It's not a 100-yard dash that that you can get done in 15 seconds. It's, It's a long, difficult race filled with hardships and trials and heartaches along the way. And so it's going to demand concentration of purpose and will. It will demand strenuous effort. You're going to have to run with all your might. Now you may think, Brian, this sounds crazy. Just a week ago, you were talking about how we are saved by grace, and it has nothing to do with you. It's all of God. That's absolutely true. But living the Christian life is going to require everything you've got. 
There's these two truths that are at tension with each other. Yes, we're saved completely by the grace of God and Christ alone, but yet it will require you to exert yourself to live out this life. So we have to have an all-absorbing desire to finish and to win the prize. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. Now, in any race, there are certain elements. You're going to have spectators of the race. You'll have preparation that goes on before the race. You'll have the course of the race. There will be a trainer that will help you prepare for the race. And there's a prize at the end of the race. And in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, you have all five of those elements. First of all, the spectators of the race. Notice how he begins. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run. Now, the author lived in the first century, and in the first century, the Greek athletic contests were wildly popular with the masses. And in these contests, they would hold these races in an amphitheater. And tier after tier would be filled to capacity with people watching these events. And so that's in the mind of the author as he's writing to these Jewish Christians. And he's saying, we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, let's try to understand what he means by this. First of all, who are the great cloud of witnesses that he's thinking about that surround us? The ones who were Yes, the ones from Hebrews chapter 11 that he just got done talking about. Like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. That's the great cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us. Now, notice he doesn't say we have a great cloud of spectators surrounding us. He says we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. What does a witness do? What is a witness? Gives testimony. You bring him into a court of law. He takes the oath. He sits down. They ask him questions. And he has to tell the truth about what he knows by personal experience to the court. Now, here's a quick definition. A witness is someone who has obtained testimony and then testifies about it. He's obtained testimony and then he testifies. He speaks. Now, a spectator doesn't speak. A spectator watches what's happening. A a witness speaks about what he knows. That's the difference between the two. So a lot of people say, well, Hebrews 12 is saying that you've got all these people up in heaven and they're looking down on us and they're cheering us on. But I don't think that's what he means because a witness is not one who watches something happening. He, He proclaims what he knows to be true. Now, go back to Hebrews 11, verse 2. Because... Here we have the very beginning of the Hall of Faith chapter. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, for by faith, the men of old gained approval. Now who are the men of old that he's thinking about? Old Testament saints, the ones he's going to talk about in this chapter. I don't think this is a good translation. It says gained approval. Literally, the Greek reads, They obtained a good testimony. 
For by faith, the men of old gained a good testimony. Now look at verse 4, because it uses the exact same Greek phrase for gained approval, and you'll see how they translate it there. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony. That's the exact same phrase used in verse 2 for gained approval. Do you see what I'm saying? So, gained a good testimony is a better translation. Now, if you go to the very end of the chapter, verse 39, it comes up again. And all these, having gained approval, or a better rendering, having gained a good testimony through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Okay, so let's put this together. Here are the witnesses in chapter 11. They all gained a good testimony so that they could testify of what they learned. What did these witnesses learn that they're testifying to us in chapter 11? They're testifying to us that faith endures, and the faith that does endure wins. It's victorious. It overcomes all obstacles. It brings you to the finish line, where you finish the race and receive the prize. In fact, some of these obstacles are even mentioned for us, like verse 33. These people conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And I love this part here in parentheses. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Don't you love that? Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Now remember, the author's writing to Jews who are being persecuted. And he says, let me just show you some of your forefathers and how they were persecuted. And they won. How'd they win? Through faith. That's the context of chapter 10, verse 36, all the way through chapter 11, all the way through chapter 12, verse 3. It's enduring faith. That's how we run this race, and that's how we win the race. So we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, but usually spectators look at runners in the race. But in this race, the runners look at the spectators. We look at the people of Hebrews 11 for encouragement for us to keep on running this race. And we see what God did in their lives. They had faith to the preserving of the soul. God kept them through the horrible persecutions. I mean, imagine being sawn in two. That happened to somebody. And he didn't give up his faith. His faith enabled him to bear up under that suffering to the very end. So the author is saying, you have a great cloud of witnesses. Look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jephthah and David. And look at these guys. They made it, and they had less gospel light than you do. They didn't know as much as you do, and they made it. You can make it too. So it's not that these guys are looking down from heaven on us. It's we're running the race, and we take a glance up at them when we get tired. Well, he made it. I can do it too. Lord, help me. Give me the faith of Abraham. Let me keep going. Let me not stop and give up on this race. So there we have the spectators. 
It's kind of a misnomer. Maybe I should have called this the witnesses of the race instead of the spectators of the race. Well, let's think about the preparation that happens before the race. Because here we're told, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, number one, and the sin which so easily entangles us, number two. Those are things that must be done before the race even begins. You have to give up encumbrances and sins which easily entangle you. So let's talk about the encumbrance first. If you're going to be a champion runner, you have to be slim. I've never, ever seen a 300-pound winner of a marathon race. Never have. Um, in fact, Frank Shorter, who was the Olympic gold winner in 1972, he was 5 feet 10 and a half inches tall, about my height, and he weighed 140 pounds. Folks, I don't weigh 140 pounds. <laughs> and another one, Bill Rogers, the winner of several world-class marathons, was five feet eight and a half inches high. He weighed 125 pounds. So you have to be very slim. Ted Corbett, who is a former Olympic marathoner, once made this statement. When people tell you as a runner how good you look, you can be sure you're not fit. If you don't look gaunt, you're out of shape. <laughs> <laughs> now, that word encumbrance means a weight or a bulk or a mass. And the idea is that as Christians, we have to lay aside all the excess weight from our life so that we can run faster and we can win the prize. So what are the encumbrances that we have to lay aside? Folks, it's anything that slows you down. Now, an encumbrance might be a good thing. It might be a lawful thing. But if it's slowing you in your Christian life down and diverting your attention away from the prize, you have to lay that encumbrance aside. I don't know what the encumbrance is for you because I think we're all different in this regard. Debbie and I were having a discussion yesterday about secret idols and we're trying to identify per these potential idols in both of our lives so that we could lay them aside. And I think that's really at the heart of this. These encumbrances, dead weight, things that sap your energy. There may be nothing wrong with army boots, right? Army boots are great if you're going to be in a, in a war, in a battle. But I don't think anybody running the Boston Marathon runs them with army boots because it's an encumbrance. It's just going to slow you down. So this could be riches. Pleasures, hobbies, it could be worries, the worries of this world. It could be distractions of various kind, encumbrances that we have to identify. And if they're slowing us down and causing us to, to run slower, to, to not give our full effort to Christ and his cause, then we need to lay those encumbrances aside. This happened to me early on in my Christian life. Before, before I came to Christ, I was really, really into the banjo. I don't, you probably didn't even know this about me, but it was, it was like my God. I admit it. It was my idol back then. My goal was to be the best banjo player in the world. And I just confess that to you guys. I practice all the time and I would, I'd get off work and every day I was practicing at least three hours a day on weekends, eight hours, Saturday and Sunday. And when I came to Christ, got married, I made a decision that, you know, this was too important to me. I needed to lay it aside. So I put it under my bed. And for about 20 years, I har hardly ever played the banjo again. Wow. 
Later on, when my kids had grown, they didn't need my attention. I got it back out and I started to play again. But I still have to be careful that it doesn't become my God. So that's just an example from my own life. Uh, what about easily entangling sins? We were called not only to lay aside encumbrances, but easily entangling sins. I think the author is probably thinking about laying aside any clothing that would trip you up in a race. Women do not wear their their wedding dress, right, when they're in a race. Men don't wear bathrobes because you'll trip, right? It's going to cause you to trip and fall, and those... Easily entangling sins will do the same for you. They're going to they're gonna cause you to take a fall from time and this time to that time. So we have to be careful about these easily entangling sins. Each of us has easily entangling sins. Sins that we're prone to fall into unless we're very careful, unless we keep our guard up. These sins could be things like alcohol or drugs or food. They could be money or pleasure or covetousness or power. Perhaps to somebody else, it would be something like pornography or lying or stealing. Someone else, it could be envy or pride or jealousy or anger. But whatever it is for you, you know what that is, right? You know the sins that easily entangle you, that you have to really be on your guard against. We need to deal with those easily entangling sins. Remember our series on putting sin to death? And we listed all kinds of various sins. Well, we're getting back to the same thought here. We have to deal radically with those sins that cause us to fall. Because we want to finish, right? Don't you want to finish this race? You don't want to be disqualified halfway through? So that's the preparation for the race. Lay aside encumbrances. Lay aside easily entangling sins. Now let's look at the course of the race. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's the course. He doesn't say a race that is set before all of you. He says the race that is set before us. Definite article, the. There's a particular specific race that you are called to run. And your race will not be exactly the same race that I will run. God has a specific course planned out for each one of us. Notice it says it's set before us. Well, who set it before us? God did. I didn't set the course of my life before me. If I did, there's certain things I would never have allowed to come into my life (laughs) that have been heartbreaking. But God is the one that set this course. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he planned beforehand that we would walk in. There's that course that God planned beforehand. So in this race, it's going to have its share of grueling hills and blistering highway stretches, but it's also going to have its share of pleasant downhill trots and beautiful scenery. Yesterday was one of those days for me when I got to spend my day with my honey. (laughs) But there's other days when you lose a loved one. You see what I mean? But God has planned the whole course. He hasn't left anything to accident or to chance or to coincidence. Every stretch of ground or valley or meadow or pavement has already been set before you by God. 
in his providence. It's laid out in his mind. He knows exactly what's going to take place. And he has said, okay, to it. He's going to allow it to unfold. But the beautiful thing is that it's all planned by our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, who designs everything that comes into our life for our good. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. But remember again that this is a marathon. It is not an easy sprint. You are going to be tempted to give up from time to time. You're going to be tempted to throw in the towel, and you're going to need endurance. That's why he says, run the race with endurance. One sports writer put it this way, the difference between the mile and the marathon is the difference between burning your fingers with a match and being slowly roasted over hot coals. This is a marathon. So get ready. Get ready because you're going to have to endure a lot of things in the rest of your Christian life. When you want to slow down or give up, remember his words, run the race with endurance. Keep that phrase before your mind. Run the race with endurance. The church has always had a lot of short spurt Christians. They run for a while. They receive the word with joy. And in time of affliction, they give up. But God is looking for people who are going to go the distance. God is not as interested in how fast you leave the blocks as how faithfully and perseveringly you continue to live for him for the rest of your life. It's not how you start that's so important, but how you finish that really matters. Remember that. It's how you finish. So keep going. Now, let's talk about the trainer of the race. And I'll just tell you a fictional little story here. You've got a very special trainer. He's a world champion. 20 years ago, he won the Olympic gold, and now he's a world-famous coach. And he saw you one day. He was walking by your high school, and he spotted you. And for some unknown reason, he took an interest in you. He chose you, and he said, I'm going to be your trainer. Now, <laughs> this was completely unexpected to you because all your friends called you the blimp. Your waistline was as big as your height. <laughs> uh, you, you were convinced that he could never make a runner out of you. In fact, you couldn't even finish a mile race in 10 minutes. You would run for a little while and you'd get so out of breath that you'd have to stop and walk. That's how bad things were. But this world-famous coach found you and he selected you and he said, I'm going to train you. I'm putting you into the marathon and you're going to win. And against all odds, the trainer began working with you. He would come over to your house and wake you up at four in the morning. And for the next three hours before school, he's right there beside you, teaching you how to run. He put you on a special diet. And so for years, you're dieting and you're training. And then he puts you into the race. But he doesn't just say, well, go run and I'll see you at the finish line. He runs along with you. In fact, he, steps, he keeps a few steps ahead of you so that you always have to look at him while you're running this race. You're looking unto your trainer as you run and as you run and as you run. And when you get so, so tired and so exhausted and you just want to collapse on the ground, you look into his loving eyes and you have strength to keep going because you know that he is a winner. He's a champion and he put all of his hope into you. And, and now you see that it's possible just by looking at him. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. He's the trainer. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, let's think about those that phrase, the author and perfecter of faith. The word author means originator. The word perfecter means finisher. He's the originator and finisher of faith. When Martin Luther made his translation of the German Bible, he translated it this way. He's the beginner and the completer of faith. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the one that enables us to believe at the beginning of our Christian life. And he's the one that sustains our faith and helps us to grow in faith all the way through this Christian life until we get to heaven. I did not understand this as a young Christian. I didn't understand that Jesus began my faith, that he was the author of my faith. I didn't get that. But Brother Anthony was just teaching us a Bible study in Ephesians 1, and in that passage it says, I'm praying that you'll understand what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the strength of his might. If you take out the two little words, these are, which are in italics, which means they're not in the original version, that's how the Greek reads. We believe according to the working of the strength of his might. How do you get faith? God, by His wor- the working of the strength of his might, enables you to believe savingly upon Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.29 tells us that it has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Well, where does faith come from? It's granted to us. It comes from the power of God working in us. So it's Jesus is the author, the originator, the beginner, and he's also the completer, the finisher of our faith. And we are called to do what? Fix our eyes on Jesus. That's our responsibility towards the trainer. We're to keep our eyes on him. Literally, it reads, looking away from all else to Jesus. So whatever else is in your life, whatever encumbrances are in your life, distractions are in your life, look away. If you want to finish this race, you can't be looking down at your shoes. You can't be looking up into the stands all the time. You can't even be looking at yourself or the race, the runners right around you. You've got to be looking ahead and your trainer is right in front of you. Look to Jesus and you'll be okay. But if you look at anything else, you're going to get tripped up and you're going to fall. Don't think of how far you have to go. Just look at him. As he fills our vision, the difficulties of the race fade into the background and the joy of fellowship with him becomes our portion. So there we have the trainer, but we have one more element to this race, and that's the prize of the race. Every race has its prize. In the first century, it could be a laurel wreath. Today, it might be a medal or a trophy or a cash award or a new banjo or the applause of the crowd, something like that. But notice what it says. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him. There's the prize that was given to Jesus. You see, Jesus also ran this marathon. He ran it before we do. He started his marathon in heaven. He then came down to Bethlehem. He kept on running up to Golgotha and Gethsemane. Then he ran to the empty tomb and then he raced back to heaven. 
and he completed his course and he won. And there was a joy set before him as he was running his race. What was the joy set before Jesus? What was it that moved him to keep going and to do the Father's will? Let's look at a text in John 6 that will help us here. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven, in other words, I embarked on this race, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now, do you see the prize, the joy that Jesus Jesus was running for? It was this, there was a certain group of people that had been given to him. He says right here, of all that he, the Father, has given me, I would lose nothing but raise them up on the last day. So the joy set before Jesus was to come down from heaven to save all of God's elect and bring them safely back to heaven. And when when Jesus is surrounded by all the children that God has given to him, Hebrews 2, right around verse 10, he'll experience the joy, the joy for which he was running, the joy that was set before him. In Ephesians 1, verse 4, it tells us, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of of his grace. So we're told there that God had this group in his mind. Sometimes he calls this group the many, like it does here in John chapter six. Other times they're called the sheep or the bride or the church. They're given various names in the New Testament, but it's that group of people that the Father has set his love upon from all eternity and then sent his Son into the world to get. And Jesus came into the world. He he embarked on this race, which took him to the cross, took him to the empty tomb, took him back to heaven because there was joy set before him. He was able to endure the cross, knowing that the people he was dying for are going to be with him forever. And there's going to be this beautiful love relationship between Christ and all of his people. Jesus said in John 17, verse 4, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. And then in verse 9, in his high priestly prayer, he prays, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So on Jesus' heart was this group that the Father had sent him into the world to get. And that's his joy. Now, how was it set before Christ? And the eternal counsels of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit took counsel together and devised a plan. And Christ was the chosen one that would come into the world to be the Savior of his people. 
The Father, Son, and Spirit formulated a plan. That The Father was the mastermind behind the whole operation. The Son is the one who comes into the world to fulfill the Father's will and to accomplish this plan. And the Spirit is the one who applies the redemption that Jesus wrought out at the cross to the hearts of all of His people, enabling faith in them. So that's how it was set before Him. In addition... In addition for this joy of his people surrounding him in glory forever, there was also another prize that Jesus had. And actually, Debbie quoted it earlier this morning from Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, Paul talks all about how Christ was obedient to death, even the death on the cross. And then in verse 9, it says, For this reason also. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this exaltation of the Son was part of the prize. And if you win the marathon, you get exalted. Right? You get your name and headlines. Uh, everyone knows about it. You get a, a few seconds of fame, you know. Well, Jesus is exalted amidst all the host of heaven. And we as his people, the many, the bride, are going to surround him and exalt him together forever. But the cool thing is that Jesus' prize is also our prize. Let me show you that from Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Paul writes, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Just as Jesus had to suffer and die and then was exalted and given a great name, the same is true of every child of God. He must be willing to suffer now. He must be willing to face hardship now. But in the end, God is going to exalt him. Remember 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and in due time he will exalt you. That's going to take place just like it took place for Jesus. When you snap the finish line, when you break the tape, you're going to be exalted by God. He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's going to be reward. There's going to be an inheritance given to you. Wow, we looked at those this morning. When we awake, we're going to see him because we're going to be just like him. That, that's the reward of finishing this race, folks. So let's draw it to a conclusion this morning. First of all, let me speak to Christians, which is the majority here. You've already begun the race, but don't stop. Don't let anything stop you from running. I don't care what it is. I love that song that we sang earlier. Um, you know, it could be the, the beautiful things in life, or it can be the hardships in life, but blessed be the name of the Lord. We have to have that spirit that God gave to Job. Naked I came from the womb, naked I'm going to return, but blessed be the name of the Lord. He had lost his whole family, he had lost everything, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't let anything stop you from running. Nothing. Derive encouragement from the Old Testament saints. That was what he was telling us. Look around at this great cloud of witnesses. They made it. You can too. So that's one of the awesome uh, beautiful things about studying the Old Testament, just like we're doing as a church. We're reading through the Old Testament. We're learning about what God did in the lives of 
previous saints. And that is for your encouragement so that you would have endurance to keep running. Let me also say to you, lay aside every encumbrance and the easily entangling sins that are tripping you up. Right now, this morning, in your mind, identify what the encumbrance is and what that easily entangling sin is and determine that you'll repent of that and that you will pray that God will sanctify you and that he will begin stripping that out of your life so that you can run more quickly and that nothing will trip you up. Also, be comforted because the course that you are on was planned by your loving father. Every detail, nothing was left to chance. He knows the things that you're going to face and there's nothing you face that you can't face in his power and his love. He will see you through them. And then keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. If you fix them on yourself, you'll want to give up because you'll see all the evil, ugly stuff inside you. So don't fix your eyes on yourself. Don't even fix your eyes on the brothers and sisters around you. Fix them on Jesus every day. Start the day fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ. Enter into your prayer closet or enter into your word and say, Jesus, talk to me. Speak to me, Lord. Keep my eyes glued on you. And then finally, remember that a glorious prize awaits you. So run because there's, there's glory ahead. There's glory ahead. But if you're not yet a Christian, what does this text tell you? It tells you that you need to start running today. You need to get in the race. Why shouldn't you reach the heavenly finish line? Lay aside anything right now that is keeping you from running and get in the race. But you say, but I'm out of shape. I'm overweight. So were all the runners in the race before the great trainer found them. It doesn't disqualify you. You see, but I'm afraid these encumbrances and these entangling sins are going to keep me from finishing. Believe on Jesus Christ and all those entangling sins are forgiven. And he can begin to strip away the power from those sins and those encumbrances. And he can transform your life. You say, but I'm afraid I'll never be able to hold out to the end. The race is long and I don't think I can ever make it to the end. Well, nobody can make it in their own strength. That's why you keep your eyes fixed on that world-class champion, coach, and trainer because he's the one that gives you the grace to keep going. You don't have any good excuses for not starting this race. If, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, there are no good excuses for this. The coach has his megaphone to his lips and he's saying, Come! The race starts in one minute. Come! Enter! It... It, if you're not in the race, it's, it's not because that great world-class coach won't let you be in the race. It's because you have made a decision that you're not going to run. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So if you won't run the race, it's because you despise the trainer and you will not obey his voice. And if you refuse to run, this message one day is going to bear swift witness against you on Judgment Day. You will remember that this preacher called you to run and you refused. So run, my friends. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, start running with all your heart. And if you are a Christian, don't give up till you snap that tape. And there's glory awaiting. 
Lord, thank you for the glory of heaven. Thank you for the glory of the inheritance of Jesus Christ that we will experience one day. And Lord, I I do pray right now that you would identify in our minds those encumbrances and easily entangling sins and give us the grace, Lord, to turn, to part with them, to strip them of their power in us, Lord, that we might walk in freedom and that we might run in freedom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.